Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I will be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to find out what brought them to this funny little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Todd Bullitt. Now, a lot of you might know Todd as the humorous and helpful guy who works at the hardware store. Today, we're going to get to find out a heck of a lot more. We're going to get to hear stories from Todd about his time working for the Coast Guard, his experience with volunteering for the Pender Island Fire Department. We're also going to get to hear Todd talk about his passion for burning pallets. Anyway, I had a lot of fun doing this interview, had a lot of laughs, and I hope you get some chuckles too. Here is my interview with Todd Bullitt. Todd, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Chris. Thanks for having me. Uh, just feel really weird about this whole situation. Yeah? yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think it'll be fun. I'm just, you know, while you're talking there, I was just looking around the room. There's so much things to touch. Like this thing here, what is that? It's a stone sculpture I made uh, a year nice. ago. And so it, like, it, it's actually representative of two people climbing stairs together to reach a pinnacle. So that's Yikes. that's what that's doing there. And there's about 75 small stones there, and each one you're not allowed to touch, right? No, you can't touch any of those. <laughs> it's tough in here. <laughs> like actually, you can, you can touch them all, but just figuratively, you yeah. know what I mean? Just yeah. like with our conversation, we'll be touching each stone as we climb together. That's going to be cool, man. Yeah, right I'm on. into that. Okay, well, thanks for coming in. It's great to have you here. And uh, we'll get started off with the first question. The first question of the podcast is, what brought you to Pender Island? Man, it's such a great, great kind of series of circumstances. So my wife, Deb, we we met in Victoria, and I, at the time, I lived out in Souk, and she lived in Victoria, and we kind of, you know, as we were learning about each other, she mentioned that she'd spent a lot of time growing up on Pender, and that her folks are still here on Pender. They own the, the hardware store. Her grandparents are here, and you know, at that time, we never really thought much about it. I didn't know where Pender was, even though I lived in Souk. And uh, she kind of didn't really even know where Souk was. So we just kind of came from these places that neither of us had explored. And, you know, just the way the world worked, we moved to Richmond. I got a job working for the Coast Guard in Richmond. And it was kind of a big transition for... There's a... I, I was thinking about on the way here, there was a group of people. We We got hired in this big group and... There's a handful of people that were from uh, Vancouver Island, and there was, you know, a handful of people that were from the Lower Mainland, and you could tell, like, everybody from the island kind of missed the island life, you know? It was like almost like a culture shock. So, spent some time living in Richmond, and, you know, just got to the point where Deb was like, I got to get out of here. I need to go back to somewhere, you know, more like the island. So... She um, started up the nursery over here, and I took some some leave. Hillary was just born, my daughter, and so I could take some time off to be at the nursery and be with Hillary and, and Hayden and just kind of be a dad for a little bit. And um, it kind of transitioned to the point where she's like, I think we should live on Pender. And um, that was kind of interesting because I didn't work on Pender. I worked in Vancouver. So we made this arrangement to commute. I worked four days on, four days off. And 
I got a little basement suite in in uh, Vancouver. Kind of the best of both worlds. You know, I had the family over here, and I go over there and work and live in this little suite. I knew right from the beginning, like when I started commuting, that that was kind of the beginning of the end. I'd seen a couple other coworkers do it for a little while. It's a, it was a tough go. So kind of in the back of my head, I knew that was where it was going to go. But I thought I'll just make the most of it for now until until I can't handle it anymore. So I did. I um, commuted back and forth for about two years. And the kids were so young. It seemed like every time I came back to Pender, they, they looked a little bit older to me. And just everything kind of came together where... Deb's parents were looking to retire and I'd been at the station for about five years. It was like I needed some type of change. So her parents offered me um, a spot at the store, kind of take over what they were doing and it meant I could be home with the kids and that's kind of how it all all worked together. So that's kind of what brought me to Pender. Um, you know, it was just kind of a weird series of circumstances. I remember thinking like going back to thinking I don't even know where Pender is to living here full time. So that's how I got here. Okay. Let's just touch on a couple of things that you mentioned there. You mentioned that you worked for the Coast Guard. Yeah. How did you get involved in that? Oh, man. You know, it's funny how things all come together. I, I went to dive school when he was really young. He's 15 now, but when he was really young, I was kind of at the stage of my life where I was like newly married, young son. And I was like, what do I want to do? And I grew up every weekend going to the beach with my dad and he was a dive instructor. I was kind of a bit of a beach rat. Like I'd spend time like running around on the beach while he was teaching the classes and going out diving. And at the end of the dives, you know, there'd be a little bit of air left in the cylinder. So I'd get, grab the tank and just kind of swim around, do my thing. And, you know, it just kind of was a natural for me. And when I was 13, which is like your minimum age to get your sport diving ticket, of course, like that was the thing I wanted to do. So I turned 13, I got my sport ticket and I didn't really do much with it after that. It was just kind of something to check off, I suppose, and to get it officially. And so when I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, I thought, well, maybe I should go into diving. Like it's just such a natural fit. And I went to this dive school in North Van and they had this a series of barges set up, these concrete barges, all the equipment was set out on there. And I was on the barge and I can remember that day, this hovercraft came like just ripping by and I'd never really seen it before. And I was like, what the heck are they doing? I had this crusty dive instructor, the kick-ass handlebar mustache. And he's like, oh, those guys are, uh, they do public safety diving. Like same thing. I was like, what, what do you mean by that? And they're, well, they pull like people out of the, out of the water, like pull them out of the cars and this and that. I was like, gross, man. I'm never doing that. <laughs> like never. Right. Finish the training. Same thing. Like during the training it was like, whatever you do, man, try to get a good job with a commercial company. Cause when you get out, it's like, yeah, they're going to go dive on a fish farm or you're going to get a, get a good commercial job. And I learned the hard way. I said same thing, like, I'll never I'll never dive on a fish farm. So sure enough, I got this job on a fish farm in Tofino right out of dive school. And I was up there. It's funny, like, looking back on it now, like, the diving was amazing. It's just beautiful, clear, like, crystal clear water, like, amazing visibility. Just diving to the bottom of this fish farm all day, every day, picking up dead fish, mending nets and stuff like that. And by fluke, um, they got this, a disease kind of was rolling through these fish farms. So like every week the schedule would get cut and you'd see less and less divers until it was finally my turn. And I got cut out of the schedule, but just before I did, this friend of mine that I went to, when I finished dive school, I took this remote submersible course. So I took this course like piloting little submersible ROVs and 
he called me up and he was at the station in Richmond, the Coast Guard station, looking for some work. And they, they weren't hiring any submersible pilots, but they were hiring some divers. And he just kind of dropped me a line saying, hey, if you're looking for work, this is happening. And of course, like a couple of days later, I got cut out of the schedule. I thought, well, maybe I should go check and see about diving for the Coast Guard. I had no idea like what the job was. It was just a public safety diving job, you know, steady work. So I, I applied you know, by luck, I got in and it was the same thing. Like I said, I'm never going to dive for dead bodies. And sure enough, that was it, right? Like that was what I was doing. So, you know, it just all came together for me working there. I, it was a full-time gig, really steady work, great equipment, like everything kind of in the diving world, like couldn't ask for a better job. The funny thing was I knew about diving, but I didn't know anything about being a mariner. So it was a weird combination of people. Like all the top side work is like, you're uh you know, you're on the water, you're being a mariner. So I had to learn everything to do with that and the diving part I knew. So there's, there's a cool blend of people because a lot of people, you know, they had, they had lots of um, experience on the water, but they didn't know about the diving side. Then I had some dive experience, but I didn't know about the the top side work. So it was a good, good blend of people, but I just kind of found myself there. Well, I'm just curious about what you mean, what it means to be a mariner. If you could just speak a little bit to that. Oh my gosh. Like, it's so funny because, you know, there's so much history there, like rich history. And there's so many traditions for being a sailor and funny words. And, you know, like just kind of like the terminology is like, there's some romance there. And there's also some, some quirkiness, you know, just like all the different terminology for navigation and rigging and, you know, reading charts and just all those things. I just had no idea like I said, you know, when I applied for the job, I didn't even know it was on hovercraft. That was kind of a bonus, right? But um, when they hired, diving was just a little portion of it. I had to go through a medic training course. There's a rough water, um, like inflatable course they send you away to up in Banfield and all these like other things that rounded out the job. So the dive training was intensive. Like it was seven weeks of just diving every day, just like in the filthiest conditions. And the most challenging things like, you never saw anything like it was so zero visibility. You just, you didn't see things. I remember going on one of my first dives in five weeks where it was outside of the Fraser river and you can actually see your hand. I thought, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Right? So just kind of going from thinking like at the end of that dive training, okay, like we're done, the training's done and going, wow, this is like just a small portion of what it takes to provide those services out in the coast is was a like crazy learning experience so you know it was a, it was a fun journey but i'm i feel glad that i didn't know what i was getting myself into you know <laughs> it's so amazing to get to hear like a little bit of a background about what's involved because you might see you mentioned your experience about being a child and seeing a, a boat go by and yeah. just being like whoa what's that all about right yeah, so man. that's cool to hear that there's so much more involved like obviously there's a ton involved right yeah for sure yeah, it was a weird uh, journey, you know, like you just, you just don't know where life's going to take you. And I think the fun thing I learned from that is never say never, because really everything I said I would never do, I ended up having to do for a living, right? Or ended up doing like as a life choice where, where life took me. So 
I'm careful to not say I'll never do that. <laughs> That's so funny. I just finished editing a previous interview this morning and that came up a yeah. couple times in the previous interview. I think it's just where you put your focus, right? If if yeah. all you think about is I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this, then you're you know sending out energy <laughs> towards that, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so you you leave the Coast Guard to come to Pender and then you join the family business. Yeah. Okay. Do tell. Oh my gosh. Like, so we've talked about this a lot. Like, it's pretty fun to revisit this stuff because, you know, the Coast Guard job was something that I was really, you know, I was just so proud to be part of this program that was providing this resource to people on the water in the region. And to me, it meant like anybody that's in and around the Fraser River, anybody that's sailing on a on a ship off the coast here, something happens, there's a team available 24 hours a day to go and assist you. And, you know, it was a tight group of like, you know, it felt like a brother, sisterhood kind of family. Everybody went through the same training to get there. They wanted to be there. And it kind of defined who you were. Like, you know, we talk about that a lot where it's like people ask you about yourself, what you do is who you are, you know, or at least at that point in my life, it felt like that. It kind of defined who it was being a rescue diver or public safety diver. And so when I came to Pender to take over the job, you know, it was the same thing where I just kind of jumped in like with both feet. Luckily, I didn't think too much about it ahead. But for the first little while, I was like, you know, I just realized a, all these skills that I had developed, you know, over the last five years with the Coast Guard, all the technical stuff just didn't apply. There was no submerged vehicles for me to help anybody with, you know, <laughs> there was nobody like ripping their arm off on a, on a winch. It, it was just, you know, I just felt literally like I was like out of my element and every, it's same thing, like all this new terminology and, you know, all these like hardened construction guys coming in every day it was like i didn't have a clue what they were saying <laughs> you know like i didn't have a clue what uh where anything was it was just like a really weird time for me and you know it kind of had like i think it would be fair to say like a bit of an identity crisis it's like who am i like what am i doing right you know it wasn't like i was having like a meltdown like crying in the bathroom but it was more like wow like i really am starting all over again here. And when I look back on it now, like I think there's a lot of life skills with jobs that are transferable, you know, like working in, you know, stress environments and, you know, working within teams, all those things, of course, are transferable, but it was the technical stuff that really overwhelmed me. And, um, you know, it was just kind of weird transitional time, like a couple of years of trying to find my, my footing and, and becoming proficient, right? So, like, I love the challenge, but I definitely felt, like, out of my element, for sure. Okay. So, when did that change for you? What what uh, what happened to create a bit of a change there? You know, I think it was just time. I think part of it was time, just learning the business. You know, I was thinking about it before where I think it felt like a couple of years, two or three years, where it was starting to really get the hang of everything. Because the first little while was really about training in every position there, just getting an idea of every job. So, and I started out in the yard, which was, I think, I don't know why I just even still I'm fond of working on the yard just because maybe it was where I started. Maybe it's just, even if you can't do 90% of the stuff there, you can still pick things up and put them down. Maybe that was the, the thing for me, but it just took a little while to like get a hold of the technical side of it. And then, like I said, kind of turning a page onto a new chapter in my life and like, kind of coming to terms with that, but recognizing like this is a new journey for myself. So 
I think the combination of the two, like technically getting proficient and then just finding yourself in that job. Sure. It's interesting because I worked at the hardware store for a period of time and worked with Todd and uh, we had a uh, lovely time together. I certainly enjoyed hanging out for sure. And it is interesting because for people who are listening who don't live on the island, they may not have a clue as to what a crazy hub that place <laughs> is for the community because yeah. everybody goes to the hardware store and it's it's where people gather in a way. And yeah. uh, and it was, it was interesting because when I moved to the island full time, I got to meet so so many people and have so many interactions and and it really opened my eyes up to who was living on the island to what they were doing it's kind of an amazing place yeah i totally agree like there's um the amount of people that come in and out of that store every day just blows my mind and we talk about this a lot where it's funny because when you hire new people and you it sounds a little like cliche where you're like, okay like it's gonna get busy you know you gotta hold on and just keep your you know just keep your head in the game kind of these silly sports cliches and everyone's like yeah yeah i get it i get it and then you know after the end of the first week or something they're just like looking at you like what is happening here you know it's just so crazy like in the busy times of the year it's it can get pretty hop in there but same deal like i agree like it's a it's a really neat hub and you meet the most interesting people there it just blows my mind like the people that walk through that door um some days you're just like wow like what is your story you know so yeah it's been fun man i really enjoy it there yeah for sure all right well let's swing things back to uh your wife deb how did you meet deb oh man this is this is embarrassing so i lived in souk at the time and i had some friends who had uh, mutual friends with Deb in Victoria. So if anybody is listening that lives out, has lived out in Souk, it's like Victoria seems like this big city, right? Like you want to get down to Victoria, you want to get out of Souk, you want to go into town for the night kind of thing. So we had some friends, some mutual friends. It was a my good friend, Cal, it was his birthday. So we we're going to take him downtown, get him some drinks. And so by coincidence, we sat, we went to this, cheesy nightclub it's probably changed his name like 10 times since but we sat in this booth and deb was there with her friends and i was there with my friends of course my friends had already like drank way too much they had spilled drinks all over the table like it was we were making a really good impression i thought right so it's like to smooth things over a little bit because the drinks had like spilt over onto their side and i started talking with with deb about you know just kind of striking up a conversation with deb and that was our first conversation about how she has family on Pender and, you know, this is my group of friends from Souk and how do you like us now kind of thing, right? So we just hit it off. Like, we just had a really fun night just kind of, you know, just sitting in this booth, talking back and forth, just kind of sharing sharing who we were with each other. And it just so happened to be that her birthday was in a couple of days and she's like, you guys should come back down and come like meet up with me for my birthday. And I thought... Why not? You know, it was just kind of a fun thing. So that's how it all started. We just, we seemed to really hit it off like right from the get go. And uh, it was fun. It was like country guy and like city girl. So, I mean, everybody that knows the island, it's not, it's not that crazy, but it felt like that. And it was really fun, you know? Okay. It's interesting because you mentioned Souk. Uh, you've mentioned Souk so many times in the past. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like it really uh, shaped who you are as a person. Yeah. And uh, let's uh, let's hear some Souk stories from you if you're willing to share. Oh, man. I, would, I don't know if it was just the time of my life when I moved there. I moved out into... I moved to Souk when I was in grade seven. 
I don't know if it was a time of my life when I moved out there that really defined or kind of shaped and helped like my direction. But I grew up most of my life in the lower mainland in Port Coquitlam, which for anybody who knows out there is like, you know, especially back then was pretty, you know, rural. Like it's not downtown Vancouver. But the fun part was when I moved out to Souk, everybody in Souk basically thought I was a city boy. And so I thought it was hilarious because, you know, if you knew if you knew Pork Aquilum, it's like, you know, that's not a city place, right? But I went over along with it just because it was better than nothing. And uh, it was a tight group of people. When I started school there, it was like everybody had – it seemed like they all like starting kindergarten up until grade 7 together. So it was like this tight group of people. It's like, who's this outsider guy? I've never taken a school bus in my life. I can remember like the first day – I was in grade seven at the end of the day and school's let out and I'm like wandering around like, man, I wonder how I get home. Like, where's this bus? And by then everyone was on the bus and had left. Like I didn't even, you know, get the whole scheduling thing. And so it was kind of an interesting first couple of days, but, um, Souk was kind of a fun place because originally, you know, it was a logging fishing community and the people that were in my grade when I grew up, they were kind of the last kids of those loggers and fishermen so you had like some really like cool but rough upbringings and then you had at the same time it was kind of this bedroom community so you had lots of people that worked in victoria that lived in souks so you had this kind of like this convergence of these you know this old culture and this new culture so it was like they were classy but yet we still burn lots of pallets lots of bush parties and fun stuff like that so it was like it just seemed like a little bit still of the wild west you know once you get up into a logging road it's like you can do whatever you want up there so it was fun man i enjoyed it and you know i think like there's something kind of same deal like there's something transferable when you live in a small town like souk felt like a small town back then it's like you can take that to other small towns and you kind of get it right so but yeah growing up souk was a blast man um we had of course like all kinds of like hillbilly kind of ways we did things and you know my friends and I would we'd all take turns buying like a total beater car I got one from my neighbor for a case of beer and uh (laughs) we just drive these cars into the ground like just driving around being just goofs with them and then once they died you you know they just get towed to the wrecker you just burn them in the middle of the you know bush somewhere and go on to the next car so it was like stuff like that was fun man when you're 17 or 18 you can just kind of you're left up to your own selves to entertain, entertain each other, and you just get into some crazy times. That's funny. <laughs> not environmentally responsible, but hey. No, I do not advocate that. <laughs> do, don't do it. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, so uh, shifting gears again here, just to touch on something that uh, we talked about earlier, and it deals with the fire department, because mm-hmm. you joined the volunteer fire department on Pender Island recently in the last yeah. couple of years. You're right, Chris. All right, right fantastic. Good, yeah. good. Just just needed to clarify that. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to get my times right. But you uh, you recently received a couple of awards, and this might be embarrassing to you, but I want yeah. you to tell us anyway about uh, what those <laughs> awards were and what that night uh, meant to you. Oh, man. Um, yeah, like if I could just go back a little bit. When I first got here, I had when I was first working at the store, I had this delivery to go that had to go up to the fire hall. And somebody warned me, like, be careful, man, when you're up there because they're going to try to recruit you. You know, and um, sure enough, I got up there and I was unloading this lift of wood or something. And 
the deputy chief came down and he, you know, introduced himself and was like, so you think, you know, have you thought about joining the fire department kind of thing? And, you know, I was really flattered. I was, you know, I was thankful that he asked, you know, it was the same thing where I was like, I'm just getting started here. I'm just kind of learning the biz and I just don't have time to get involved with anything else. And the kids are young and, you know, a million different excuses. And for me, it was um, just not the right timing. And, a couple years ago, I realized like my kids are getting older and they're in their teens. And some days I didn't even, I don't even know if they really know if I'm home or not or care. And I was like, okay, this is a good time to get involved. Right. So, you know, I thought about it like for quite a while and I, and I just wanted to get back to some of the emergency services. And one of the big draws for me moving to Pender was to be able to do some community work. And I hadn't achieved that. Like I just worked at the store and I was like, okay, I'm going to make some, carve out some time here and get involved. And I had run into, um, you know, of course, like so many members. And I just thought, man, these guys, guys and girls are just like providing the service on a different level than I was expecting. Just a really professional level. The training was really like top notch. And I thought, man, I want to get involved. Right. So I joined, it was a little under three years ago and it's just been a great place for me to just kind of, for lack of a better term, like flourish. It just kind of my environment, um, doing the emergency services is so much fun for me and getting back to what I really enjoyed about the Coast Guard, right? Getting out there and helping people and doing things that are a little more high stakes. And so, yeah, it's been a blast. Every year you, you do a fitness test and there's a cutoff in the fitness test. It's like five minutes. A lot of people can walk the test in five minutes and pass. And it's a pass-fail test, right? No one has to do what we do. But, of course, you want to see how fast you can do it. It's pretty grueling. I, th- I think it's grueling. You know, if you can get through it in a couple minutes, you're doing pretty good. So, you know, every year you got there's at least a handful of people that are just going to go leave it all out on the on the training ground and just go for it. And I know, like, for me, I try to get under two minutes and it's the worst two minutes of your life. Like it just feels like I wish I could throw up to get it over with. You know what I mean? And, uh, I ran it last year. I just put it, left it all out there. And just by a little bit of luck, you know, just one extra step or whatever it happens to be, I got a really great time and I won an award for that, which was super fun. And I wasn't expecting that actually. I just kind of lucked out. I think the other one that really meant a lot to me was the firefighter of the year award. And so we were talking about that where they put it out to the membership to nominate somebody based on a list of criteria and you know, it was just, I was really flattered and humbled to be nominated by my peers for that. That meant a huge, so much to me just for how much respect and admiration I have for the the people that have been training me and putting time and effort into me to get that nomination felt great. It was a great night. And like I was saying too, um, I got a chance to where my wife, Deb, her grandfather was the second chief on Pender. So I wore his chief's jacket to the banquet and that was just a blast. You know, it's just like, it's a little bit outrageous looking. It looks like I should be going to a roller derby or something, but um, just to wear that in his honor was a super fun night. It was good. That's nice. And and I know uh, through talking to you in years past that family really means a lot to you and that your extended family and your family-in-law means a lot to you. So, mm-hmm. so getting to wear your uh, grandfather-in-law's jacket because he's someone who has a lot of history on this island maybe if you just like touch on him just just let us know a little bit about him. oh man um yeah it's interesting like i'm glad you brought that up because 
sometimes like the line between, you know, your immediate family and then your in-laws, like for me, it's been so blurred. Like, you know, they've just treated me like one of their own right from day one. And to be able to kind of like reciprocate that is pretty special. And what I mean in that is like following in Max's footsteps with the fire department and carrying on that tradition of like giving back to the community has been a real honor and there's pressure there too like the guy has done a lot to contribute to Pender and to live up to that it's been special Max he you know I wouldn't say he's pioneer on Pender but he's like one of the earlier families here him and his wife June um, live you know most of their adult life here contributing to Pender um, being involved like with so many different boards and initiatives and developing Magic Lake and donating land to the Recycling Depot and all those different things that make Pender what it is today has been pretty special. And the guy's just, just, for lack of like a better term, like a guy's guy. Like, you know, he's got the aviators. He's got a, you know, has a glass of scotch in the afternoon. He's got his smokes. Like, he's just a real guy's guy, man. He's, I've never seen him do this, but he's the kind of guy I think he could like smoke and play tennis at the same time. You know what I mean? <laughs> So a really good guy and, uh, you know, always willing to help people out and pay it forward and, and like contribute to Pender. I think that's so cool. All right. Right yeah. on. And then just to, just to, uh, tie off the fire department <clears throat> side of things, because I had a little bit of experience with it myself because I joined and, uh, went through half of the training program, but I just realized it wasn't for me, but I really got to see a lot of the behind the scenes as to what goes on and the effort that's involved. And it really amazed me actually as to the, uh, the extent of what I saw in my really brief time behind the scenes is the program for the volunteer fire department. And, um, it seems pretty remarkable. It is pretty incredible. I mean, it's interesting when you kind of put it into perspective because, you know, to imagine like a volunteer police service or a volunteer like ambulance service, like I don't think people can wrap their mind around that, but it's kind of commonplace in like in smaller areas where you have a volunteer fire service and people are willing to like step up and answer the call, so to speak. You know, that takes some serious stones some days, right? So I think it's pretty cool. And like you said, the behind the scenes work to coordinate all those people, like I like to jokingly call it like hurting the cats like you put a bunch of type a people together and try to get them to focus on one thing is like you know it's like its own challenge right there so you know to get people to come together work on the same page and like provide those services is pretty cool i think it's neat right on yeah man all right moving into the second traditional question on this program that we're touching on who has helped you along the way on pender island oh man i love that question like you know i was thinking about it before i came over and one of the things for me, it's funny because you're like unlocking the vault of all these memories, especially when I first got here, the trauma of trying to like get going and figure out what to do. So it's like I put it all in, in the very back for the longest time. But the reason why I like the question so much is because I think it speaks to the nature, like the true nature of great Pender Islanders to begin with. And Pender is built on that cooperation and helping each other along and I noticed like even in the business, it must have been obvious to those who I was helping, like just the kind of like the terror, fear look on my face. But there's so many great longstanding customers that we have that took time to train me on how to do the job, right? So that's incredible. 
you know, I can think of like, and you and I will, will know all these people, but I'm thinking about like Esmond French. Not only will he come and ask for a part, but he'll tell you what the part's for and why they're using it. Because you have no idea, right? You're just holding this thing like, just take it and go, right? <laughs> <laughs> so Esmond, you know, take time, stop and like, tell me about these things, why he's buying it, why, what these parts are for, where they're going. And then just as a side note with Esmond, like he's one of my favorite oral historians of Pender. The guy has... Not only so much knowledge on like, you know, where Penders come from, how it got to where it is today and the people that were involved with that, but all the different pieces of tools and equipment and things along the way that we just kind of lost touch with like using these things, you know, the hand tools and the tough work it took to like live on Pender. That guy has so much great knowledge. Like he's he's a blast to talk to. You know, I was thinking about Brent Marsden. Brent Marsden's like one of my favorite guys. Um, just taking a moment to stop and like explain the same thing. Like just take a, a bit of time out of his day to help you do your job. And we're talking customers here. Like they're already paying for the the merchandise. Just to take a moment, like help you learn a little bit more and understand like the big picture of, you know, where those materials are going, what they're doing with them. Brooke Baxter is a great guy. That guy's such a craftsman. And to take a second, just explain like same deal, like what he's doing out on the job site and the little things that make a difference, like in his building, it's still like learn things from Brooke today that really make a big difference, like helping the next customer. So I, unfortunately, like in some ways, it's all work related because it feels like that's really what I did like so much the first little while that I got here. I had some acquaintances, like mutual acquaintances with the RCMP when I got here just from my work with the Coast Guard. And that was a blast just making some common like friendships. Uh, Ron Parker was a great friend of mine with the RCMP and we did some fun things together. So it was like we kind of share that same like take it to the next level type of attitude. So what do you mean by take it to the uh, next level kind of attitude? So here's a great example. When I met Ron on a call at one point, the hovercraft came over and he was, it was a call. I think it was on main Island falling in the water and there was a transfer. Anyways, I met him on uh, main. We kind of recognized one another from Pender. And so when I moved to Pender, it was like, now we got time to, hang out and do some fun stuff and i've been telling him about how i wanted to get into free diving because i was like at that point in my diving career you know i was wearing like you know 60 80 pounds of gear just to get to the bottom of the ocean and walk around like you know when it came to like safety diving a lot of the work you you walk on the bottom like you're looking for somebody so you walk along the bottom for your search so I wanted to get back to like this purest style of diving and that to me was free diving so the one thing about free diving is like, you just can't do it alone. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't push your limits of holding your breath, going down to the bottom of the ocean without somebody there. <laughs> so I saw Ron and I said, Hey man, I want to get into this, into free dive and you want to give it a shot. So of course he was in, you need kind of specific gear to free dive, but in the meantime, you can use the basic stuff. So we go out and kind of do what I would call like free diving, snorkeling, you know, just go out and swim down to the bottom of the ocean, kind of learn like the nuances of free diving. And for me, it was like, especially like having grown up diving and then getting into diving for a profession, like it was a whole new chapter of diving that I didn't know was out there. And it was refreshing because except for like extreme 
commercial diving, you know, offshore or something. I was like, I kind of got, I get the gist of diving. And I think like I've explored the different avenues of diving. And this was like a whole new realm. And it was kind of counterintuitive. It's like, you're going to take your dive into another level by using far less gear and getting into your own head. You know, it's a matter of like meditation. It's like where meditation and like athleticism hits the road, like where they meet. So we started free diving. It was like, as soon as we got into it, it was like, okay, now we need the proper fins. You know, we you can't use a, a scuba diving fin. You need like a three foot long fin. So it's like, okay, so we get these fins like, okay, now you need a proper weight belt. Because like a standard weight belt, it just doesn't like shrink and expand as you go down to the bottom of the ocean. So it's like, we take it to that level. It's like, okay, now we need to go. Let's see how deep we can go. So it's like, you know, as you're getting better and better at like meditating, slowing your body down and becoming efficient with your kicks, you're like going deeper and deeper. So it's like... It was a classic kind of type A thing where it's like, you know, you're hitting 50 feet and it's like, oh man, we can hit 50. Well, let's, what's 55, what's 60, kind of keep going. So it's like, we went out on this dive one day and it was like, all the conditions were good. Everyone, we were both feeling great. We were diving off a boat and it's like, you drop this anchor and you follow the anchor line down and back up. So we took turns like going deeper and deeper and like Ryan came back up after this dive. (laughs) He could kind of like like sputter out the depth because he's out of breath and i was looking at him his lips were like as blue as could be like this guy is like brain dead practically just high-fiving me because we were hitting 100 feet and that was the kind of thing where it's like you know you got that friendly competition like pushing one another and you can achieve like some amazing things the thing i loved is like you go down to the bottom of the ocean and there's no because you don't have the equipment like the regulators and the cylinders and all the clanging and the bubbles it's like the most peaceful you know you just got this kind of like you know the pressure of the ocean around you and all the animals aren't scared of you because you're not this weird noisy thing and it just took diving to a level it was like you know, almost a little bit spiritual. It was like I'd finish, uh, you know, a couple hours of free diving and just feel like absolutely centered and calm. It was the best. I loved it. Nice. Yeah, man. That's really neat to hear about people's experiences being underwater and what the feeling is around that. Because I've never enjoyed it. I've never jo- enjoyed <laughs> yeah. being in deep water. But yeah. um, I'm always amazed to hear people respond so emphatically to doing that. And that like inherently within some people I've talked to that it's just, like you say, spiritual. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I've always wondered, you know, like I said, I just kind of grew up around the water and I grew up swimming and doing all these, you know, water related things. And I always like, I loved the water. I had like this Jacques Cousteau book when I was a kid and I would read it like nonstop because A, he had like an underwater kind of like this scooter submarine thing, uh, which I thought was cool. And then B, there was these underwater labs, like, which, you know, as a kid, I was like underwater house. Like that's so amazing. And it just kind of was like a natural, like, I just love the idea of like being underwater and finding treasure. Like, you know, that was my motivation for diving to begin with. I just wanted to find treasure. And I was like, well, I'll just pick up some dead bodies until I score the, the mother load, right? <laughs> so it's like, it always seemed totally natural for me to like, I always loved holding my breath in the bathtub. I would just like hang out and hold my breath for as long as I could. And so it's just kind of a natural thing for me. But I always wonder like, you know, they say like, we just have this dive reflex this mammalian kind of dive reflex like can everyone unlock that or is it just kind of some people are more in touch with it i don't know 
who knows? I don't know either, but it's interesting when you said uh, finding the treasure. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that uh, the act of doing it is probably the treasure that you're, you're seeking. Whoa, man. That is, that's deep. I, I'm coming into the mic for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I totally, I agree, man. I mean, I found some fun things underwater, but the journey is the best part for sure. Like some days you go out, I mean, not every dive is the same, but you know, some days it just seems like you unlock like a different access, a different part of yourself if you're doing some pretty fun diving and that's cool for sure. Right on. Yeah. And and just to bookend the uh, the question about uh, the people who have helped you. And so you mentioned Esmond, yeah. Brent and Brooke um, with people who come into the store yeah, and you man. interact with and you're there to help them. But in turn, you're saying that they've really helped you. Big time. And I think, you know, that's Pender. It's just such a neat place. If I didn't have those experiences and I didn't have people like taking a moment out of their day, a selfless moment out of their day just to pay it forward, I just wouldn't know what I know today at the store and I wouldn't have learned what I learned as fast as I was able to thanks to people just taking a moment. And, you know, I just feel like Pender's built on that. Like people genuinely stop and pay forward like we were talking about with the fire department. It's built on the backs of people wanting to give back to the community. And that's pretty cool, man. Yeah, it's really cool. And you see it so many different places or you don't because because I think that you have to um, look for it. Mm-hmm. Is that if, if if you're not really tuned in and aware that that's what's taking place, you might miss it. Yeah. But uh, I'll just use the example I thought of Esmond bringing in some old tools for you. Yeah. I remember you showing me in the past. You're like, "Hey, Chris, what do you think this is?" I'm like, oh, "I don't <laughs> care. Get that thing away from me. I don't. I don't care what that thing it's is." Dirty. <laughs> but you ha- you had such an interest and such a passion for uh, learning about that, and obviously, like Esmond, I'm sure you know caught on to that and like would bring more things in because you like you're showing an enthusiasm yeah, for, for sure that. yeah and i think like it seems like there's a renaissance of um you know it's kind of romantic to think of it but you know working with your hands and you know these crazy hand tools and weird things that esmond would bring in and like rigging and like you know like i would call like big boy stuff you know you kind of forget like there's some hard work going on out there you know, I had got the chainsaw that Max used to use. It was a two-man chainsaw. I think you might have seen it when you were there. And, you know, it has like a, you know, like a 48-inch or 50-inch bar. And the thing's so big and so heavy, like two people. It takes two people to use the thing. And I remember talking to Max about it one day. And he was like, sometimes this guy, you know, whoever worked with him wouldn't show up in the morning and have to use the thing on his own. You know, at my age, I'm... I carried this thing in like straining to show it to him thinking this guy, this is unbelievable work these guys were doing, you know, trying to go to work with a two man chainsaw, have him do it on your own because nobody shows up that day. It's just like incredible stuff. I was talking to Paul Hampson one day and he was telling me there was a logging camp over here and they had a Swedish guy. I might, I might have the facts a little upside down here, but they had a Swedish guy that was He'd eat like a dozen eggs every morning for breakfast. They were logging like till sun up till sundown kind of thing. And it was a really bad winter, like super cold. And of course, like back in the day, like these saws wouldn't start that easily on a good day. They started a fire and they put the saws in the fire to warm these things up enough to start them and go to work. And I thought, man, that is hardcore. Like if I had a day like that, I'd be like, man, I guess we'll try again tomorrow kind of thing, you know? And these guys are just going to work. So it was like... 
you know, that's kind of my love of these old tools and equipment that uh, people bring by. They seem to naturally bring them by the store for sure. But you see these things and you think, man, like we've come so far from that, that that's why I say I think sometimes there's a bit of a, like a, a return to like working with your hands a little bit and this like renewed, you know, how do you say it? Like people today are fond of like these blue collar, like trades workers because they're out there getting the job done kind of thing, right? Yeah, totally. Moving into, uh, yeah, thanks for, actually, you know what? I'm just going to say thanks for sharing that. It's, it's yeah, good. Man. It's like nice to hear your enthusiasm <laughs> about that. And uh, yeah, no, it's great. I'm just going to throw in a little bit of an open question here because uh, I know that from a day-to-day basis, your interests and things uh, mm-hmm. vary because you seem to be interested in a lot of different things. Oh, you got it, man. Yeah, where are you at right now? Like, what's, uh, yeah. what, are you, what are you thinking about right now? What's uh, tickling your imagination? Oh, man, great question. I'm glad you brought that up, man, because... I always try to articulate really what it is, kind of my my motivation, but I like to use these cliche terms like hard chargers or like going down the rabbit hole. I've always been that type where, you know, just something, a topic or a subject will like kind of catch my interest and I'll just devour it. Like just try to learn as much as I can about it until I feel satisfied knowledge wise and i'm like okay i'm gonna go on to the next thing and i've always kind of been that way so i just find a topic and i feel kind of lost if i don't have something that i can just kind of almost i'd say healthy obsession (laughs) you know where it's like i'm just gonna learn and do as much as i can and then once i kind of reach this point i feel like i got I got as much as I can out of it. Then I'll just go on to something else. And um, we had that experience together, you and I. We were talking about this book, Born to Run. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's really a fun book because, you know, there's some archaeology going on in there. There's some sports science going on in there. There's some cultural stuff. And it's like, you know, for anyone who hasn't read it, the best way to describe it is like, it's a look at our history of our ability to run and are we really meant to run? Because a lot of people today are like, man, my, my feet, shin splints, all these things, like we're just not designed to run. We shouldn't be running. So this book argues that we are, like we're absolutely designed to run. And so I read the book and I was like, I'm just going to start running, man. Like I'd made this breakthrough kind of running excursion with Scott who I've been like working out with and we were getting ready for the Tough Mudder. And so there's a lot of running involved with the Tough Mudder. And I never really, for anybody who knows like my workout interests, it's like, I like to lift super heavy. I think anything over five reps is cardio. I just like to go in and like see how much I can lift, right? So I never really put much time into running because I thought it was just going to make me like wither up and disappear. So we started training for the Tough Mudder and... Scotty comes from a different background. Like he's got running in his family. Like it's a tribe of running people. And just interject, this is Scott Elliott you're talking about. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. So Scott had like kind of been this ambassador of running to me where he's like, no, you can do it. Like people can run. And uh, I was like, no, man, it's just nobody runs this far. It's impossible. So I started running enough where it stops sucking, you know, because I always... I remember like going out on these runs and being like, man, when does this stop not sucking so bad? Like, it's just not very fun. I don't get it. Right. So I started like getting to these points where I could start running and it wasn't like, I wasn't waiting for it to be over. And then when I read this book, I was like, man, people really can run. Like, how far can I run? So that's what I mean about going down the rabbit hole. I was like, how far can I run? So I started doing like, you know, maybe 6K, 8K kind of things. And we did a couple 10Ks to get, 
you know, ready for the mudder. And it was like, we started doing trail running just because it was easier and it was going to be more, more suitable to doing the mudder. So we started doing these trails over here and then it would be got into like an obsession, like, well, how many, how can we string these trails together to go farther? And so we started running 12 Ks and, and then we're like, I wonder if we can run from one end of Pender to the other end of Pender. So we called it the tip to tip. And uh, which a lot of people just read into and think it's weird, but we went from Stanley Point and <laughs> for, just to back up, like anybody who knows me, like I can't go maybe more than maybe 15 minutes without eating. Like it just gets so hungry. So it's like my biggest fear, like anything on this run was like food. So Scott, like being smart enough, like stash food along the way. And we had we had food at the ambulance station. We had food down on Hall 3 on South Pender and food in my pockets. I just, I don't know what it is. I just can't go very far without eating. So we ran the North Pender to South Pender. And it was like, I can't remember, 20-something K. And it was like, holy moly, like, what is my limit here? And just kind of being the sandbagger that I am, I like, Scotty was out of town one weekend. Deb and the kids were away. I was like, I had a total un booked night and i was like i'm gonna run as far as i can run on pender i got no time frame i'm just gonna go for it i had like tons of music on my phone and like this little like running you know harnessy thing with like food in every crevice and i just ran like as far as i could and it was great man like i ran up around road lake and all through the campground like just stringing all these different places together and if if you don't know my driveway, it's like so brutal. It's almost like it's under a kilometer, but it's all uphill. And I got to the bottom of my, my driveway. My legs were so torched. And I was like, I don't think I can. I don't think I can make it up my driveway. Like, what am I going to do here? <laughs> I actually like put my hands on my knees and like worked my legs to get up the driveway. I can't remember how far it was. It was farther than the tip to tip, but I was like, that's how far I could run. And... I did a little bit of running after that. I was like, kind of like, that's it, man. That's my interest in running. And then I just kind of went on to the next thing. What? Seriously? So you yeah. totally yeah, kind of quit running after well, that? I just, yeah, pretty much. Or let like, it go. You let it go. I let it go. I just kind of put it aside and I was like, I'll get back to that later. Because I found it hard to like lift super heavy and run. Like it's almost like you can have one or the other in terms of like physically and i think it's just my nature like i don't have the ability to like laser focus on more than one thing at a time so it's like it's either going to be all running or all lifting and i just kind of was like i did the tough mutter i felt great and i was like okay next thing and what's the tough mutter for people who haven't heard of that kind of like an obstacle course race i think the one we did was 17 or 18 K this like you run a, you run a little distance and there's a crazy obstacle. There's filthy mud pits all over the place. There's like, you know, ramps, things that climb up and over things that go under, like just, it's actually pretty fun, you know, like a bit of an adventure race. And, um, it was up in Whistler. It was a blast. So it was like the trail running was beautiful, just super fun time. I was super, like, I felt really conditioned so I could enjoy it. You know, I wasn't like running through it, just going, Oh God, when's it going to end? But it was a blast, man. Like, you know, I would do it again for sure. And I, I should say like, it's kind of funny because I hit that same point, like with the running that I did with the diving where, and we talked about that. I'd have these moments where it just felt like almost out of body where I was just like my body was running down the trail and my mind was watching it happen. And it just felt not every run was like that, but it have some epic runs where I just felt like a million bucks at the end of it. It was just like a spiritual kind of thing. And then uh, I gave it up. 
<laughs> That's interesting. So uh, an out of body experience because yeah. like you're pushing your limits. You know, I don't know what it is. Like maybe it's just your body's trying to disconnect because it is painful. You know, maybe you're just like, it's a meditation thing where you just are so in the zone that the two separate. I don't know. It just felt great, man. And that's kind of what, like, once I started hitting those, that's when I could start really running like long distances and just kind of like get into the moment. You know, your senses change. It just felt fantastic. It was always like a trail thing. Like, I really enjoy running the trails for some reason. I think it's just more like the natural connection. And it was just a blast. I, I had a blast with it. Right on. You mentioned that you can't go more than 15 minutes without eating. I, I don't think you can go more than 15 seconds without cracking a joke of some kind. <laughs> yeah, no joke. And uh, just to let people know, it was uh, an incredibly awesome experience to get to hang out with you for a day after day because for those who don't spend that much time with Todd, everything is funny in Todd's <laughs> mind. And there's there's always a joke to be made somewhere, uh, somehow. And uh, I would actually say you were probably the funniest person I've ever met just because of the uh, consistent the <laughs> relentlessness and uh, you are a comedic genius i have to say and i just want to know like what what are your comedic influences oh man you know man i'm like it's funny that you asked that because i was thinking the other day like i don't know maybe it was a sign of the times or something but i grew up in the 80s love sit a sitcom like i think that was the golden age of sitcoms my favorite things and we talked about this a lot too anything where you have a very special episode different strokes family ties like it feels so weird because and that's kind of how my life has been where like there's all these serious moments and then they're so serious that you're like i gotta take the edge off man you know what i mean so it's like i feel like being raised by the tv and um watching so many different like sitcoms like punky brewster and um just like you name them like i and not that the a team's a sitcom but you gotta admit it's pretty influential and um just kind of like catching all those different like setups like classic comedy setups and like clean comedy like you had to really be funny back back in the day to like get a laugh out of out of people instead of just like dropping f-bombs and kicking people in the balls kind of like you know in the 90s 2000 era stuff so i think like even like um, Seinfeld, like I love Seinfeld because it's like such great writing and it's like witty and same deal, like it's clever. Like you got to be clever to to get those ones out there. But yeah, like I use, I for me, like serious times like make me feel really uncomfortable. And so I use comedy, like take the edge off. <laughs> and I seem to like, you know, in the emergency services, like you grab, like you take those moments to like take the edge off humor sometimes out. Some people get pissed off about it, but I think it's funny to like, just, just take a moment, like lighten up a little bit and make it easier on people. And then same with the hardware store. Like some days they get a little intense and it's like, you know, let's just like goof around a little bit and take the edge off. And so it's, it works for me. And, um, it backfires on me too. Cause when I'm, when I'm trying to be sincere, people kind of are like waiting for the punchline. So that part, you know, that's always worked against me, but I was like, I can tell you a great, I don't know if it's a great story, but we went on a call once to do a recovery and, um, this poor soul just had gotten his, you know, had kind of washed up in this area where it was really difficult to get to him. And there's only like some feet hanging out and there's a five man crew to do these recoveries, but there's only two feet. Right. So we had a game of, um, paper, rock, scissors to like 
try to figure out who's going to do it. And just like taking a moment to like, and of course this is in like all in the private area. So it's not a public thing, but like just taking a moment to like lighten up and like leave it up to chance on who's going to have to, to handle that. You know, it takes the edge off, right? I lost, so I got a foot out of it, but it, it worked out okay. But, um, you know, it just seems like there's some irony there where it's like you got such a serious situation and like you can take a moment to like lighten up. And I feel like this whole serious conversation is like not lightening things up. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you know, actually, that's something that I think that I learned from you is that uh, in terms of there's there's always time for humor because mm-hmm. I don't think I really bought into that before. And I love joking around. I've, I've yeah. been a joker, you know, most of my life, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. if not all my life. <laughs> and so uh, I appreciate that. I've, I've thought from time to time, I was like, oh, yeah, I didn't used to do this. But uh, yeah, Todd. Well. I can, I was thinking the other day, like, I can remember this time when we were working at the store and you were like fairly new there and somebody had, <laughs> this part cracks me up the most, somebody had phoned and they asked you, this, this is probably like the 17th question today that you didn't, you weren't equipped to handle. Somebody called and asked you for this part that you had no idea what it was or where it was or what it's for. And I remember you like, you couldn't deal with it and like you didn't hang up on the guy but you finished it you looked at me and you're kind of like i don't i can't help these people i don't know what i'm doing here and like (laughs) just it was like i knew i was like this guy is about to crack up and we're gonna lose him and it was just like okay man don't worry we're gonna we can do this but it was like there's a moment there where it's like you know, where you just see people and they're like, I'm about to lose my shit if you don't help me through this. And uh, like, we've all had those days. Um, but it's like, it's fun to have a little bit of a laugh over it, but not during it. I find that it's not good to make fun of people while they're losing it. <laughs> but if you can get them through it, it's okay. While Todd was telling that story, I was laughing silently the whole time away from the mic and I have tears in my eyes because <laughs> I remember that well and I remember him teasing me so much about it. But yeah. um, we have reached the end of our time together, Todd. Oh, man. Yeah. It's been flying by. I know. That went by fast. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you for coming in. Any any uh, last words you want to part off with here? Oh, my gosh. You know, I don't even know where to start. I could go on for hours. Like, it's just so fun hanging out. And, uh, yeah, man, I think, like, these kind of conversations really make you think back and, like, to all the directions and people who've, like, shaped where you end up today. And it's kind of fun in a way. Like, you know, I wish I could, like, I wish there's more people I could mention that have helped me and brought me to where I am today. Like... It's just a fun journey. You know, you just don't know where you're going to end up. And uh, Pender's such a great place to be. And I just love all the interactions, like, that are possible here. You know, I just, I was going to mention, I just felt like there's a kind of a suspicious calmness. We talked about this to your previous guest, Nia. I just thought that she was just so calm that it actually worried me a little bit because I was like, when is she going to lose it? And, you know, I don't know if it's going to happen soon, but when it does, it's going to be incredible. No, I'm just, I'm just joking about that. But listening to her podcast, man, it just made me like, just made me calmer than I've ever been. And just, I didn't like that feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you had to crank up some Motley crew afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Just get the white noise happening. Go burn some pallets. Good. All right. Back to soup burning pallets. Well, Todd, thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you. All right. Well, that was a pretty fun one. And in honor of that interview, 
I decided I would go to the north end of the North Island. And not only am I at the far end of the island, I've actually walked out into the ocean. And it's a beautiful spring evening. Very cloudy right now. It's blocked out the sun that's been shining all day. And the water up to my knees here. Well, it's, <laughs> it's cold, but not too cold. And... The birds are very active right now. I can see Main Island just in front of me, just a little shot away. Thank you all for listening. Until next time.